Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello and welcome to Energetics Latest Podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Holt, General Manager here at Energetics. Today with me, I have Brendan Bateman. Brendan is a partner at Clayton Utes Law Firm and is the firm's leader of Climate Change and Sustainability Group. He advises businesses and corporations on the risk of climate change and the implications of emerging government policy and legislations for a low carbon economy. So welcome, Brendan. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. We've seen a, quite a high increase in climate-related litigation over the last uh, year in particular, uh, accumulating with the Rocky Hill judgment uh, last year. What are you seeing in the litigation space around climate-related risks? Uh, look, I think it's important to put this in context, Peter. Uh, one of the things that people don't realise that Australia is actually the second highest ranking country when it comes to climate-related litigation. So Australia is well up there compared to a lot of other countries in the world in terms of the types of litigation that we've experienced and are experiencing. Um, certainly Rocky Hill, as you mentioned, was a significant case last year uh, and attracted a lot of attention. But there are also a number of other uh, cases, different types of cases, uh, that we've seen, uh, not just planning merits appeals in relation to projects, but we've also seen the McVeigh case, which is involving a member of a superannuation fund bringing proceedings against the trustees of that fund, alleging that they've failed to pay sufficient regard to climate change risk when assessing the investments that they make on behalf of their members, so effectively alleging a breach of the trustees' duties there. We've also seen other litigation uh, involving shareholders bringing proceedings against uh, large corporates. In 2017, we had shareholders bring actions against the uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, where it was alleged that the um, the reports, annual report and disclosures made by the CPA in 2016 didn't provide a fair and reasonable view of the bank's position in relation to climate change-related risk. So we're seeing very different types of litigation, shareholder litigation, member superannuation fund litigation, in addition to the usual types of project approval, project challenges approvals that we might see, for example, in relation to the Adani McColl mine. So the combination of those litigations then, how have uh, your clients and the Australian, particularly the boardrooms, responded? Look... <laughs> Very, very big question and a very difficult question to provide a simple answer to. Um, invariably, the responses have been different. Uh, uh, certainly, my also my experience is that those attitudes and responses have changed over time. So certainly, say, 10 years ago, a lot of the reactions that I got from some of the corporate clients was one of denial, was one of saying, particularly in the energy resources sector, was one of um, saying that, you know, the relevant attitude to take was to damn the torpedoes full speed ahead type of approach, which was to take on the action and demonstrate um, the view of the, the corporate at that particular time. Certainly those attitudes have changed and become much more responsive to the risk of climate change to their own businesses, understanding that regulatory environments are changing and that certainly the critical mass, I think, particularly in the investor sector, 
but also in the business community itself is certainly moving very closely in alignment with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And we're seeing a number of corporates setting net zero emissions targets. So in other words, they're assuming obligations, which currently they don't legally have uh, under certainly uh, laws in Australia. So, Brendan, you've said attitudes are changing. Are we just seeing the tip of the iceberg here or are we really getting a wholesale change of the market? Uh, Certainly, I think if you were to look at it in particular sectors um, and if you look in the financial services sector and including in that the insurance sector, you'd say that that is operating effectively on a sectoral basis, moving very quickly towards that. And I think that's attributable to a number of things. Firstly, uh, that sector gets risks. Its entire uh, business model is around assessing investment risk, but also they are the ones that have been, um, I suppose, best equipped also to understand how it can be translated into a financial risk. And so they also have the benefit of the development of tools which have been used. So like take the science uh, and take the objective facts and translate them then into how that might impact on the strategy, but also translate that into a financial metric. And they also have the benefit of the TCFD guidelines, which have assisted them in the development of their approach and response to dealing with climate-related risk. So on that, do you think we have the right financial metrics to assess these risks yet? Uh, I'd have to say that it is developing. It's also challenging uh, in the sense that whilst there are tools that are being developed, I think it's a case of that it's a learning by doing approach that's happening at the moment. Uh, That's not to say that that's wrong. Indeed, I think it's a very important part of the exercise that needs to be undertaken by business and corporates. And I think that there needs to be a building of capability, uh, internal capability uh, within organisations to understand climate-related risk and how that translates then into financial assessment of the risks posed by climate change. So you mentioned earlier also the uh, the role that the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures or the TCFD is playing in this space as well. And that provides a very useful framework for businesses and investors to learn. Um, and we're seeing that through particularly a lot of the resilience testing and scenario analysis that businesses are undertaking. What kind of resilience testing are you seeing uh, your clients undertaking at the moment? Again, I'd have to say that there's uh, different levels of sophistication when it comes to that. Certainly, there are a number of sectors and businesses that are very well equipped at doing that type of scenario analysis. Uh, And that's one of the important elements, as you'd probably appreciate, Peter, with climate change, is that it's not uniform. It has different effects over different geographical areas as well as different sectors uh, and in different players within those particular sectors as well. So it is a very amorphic uh, thing that needs to be assessed and then seek to try and translate into some uh, objective, uh, accessible means. Um, That having been said, the financial metric tools are improving. Uh, They have to uh, develop and evolve over time. And certainly, I think from our perspective and what I'm seeing is that there's a greater level of sophistication in saying that we need to understand from a risk perspective the types of scenarios that we're going to have to be exposed to. And that runs from you know the, the net zero emissions scenario through to various other less attractive scenarios as well. So it is a very complex space as well. And that's been one of the challenges for businesses and for the financial sector to get their heads around. Do you think we've overcome that barrier now? 
I think that from my perspective and what I'm seeing is that there certainly is overcoming the barrier to engage with the issue of climate change and climate related risk, that there's a seen to be a need not just be seen, but also to actually do. Uh, and we've seen that through not just the responses of business to the particular risks that they're exposed to, but also because of the attitudes of investors, uh, shareholders, but also regulators, not just in Australia, but also overseas. There's a growing expectation that businesses not only need to assess uh, climate-related risks to their particular business and their investment strategy, but also disclose it. And whilst it isn't mandatory at the moment. There seems to be an inevitability about that we will be getting to a point where not only will climate-related risks need to feature in annual reports as they are currently required to do, but also that there'll be a mandatory disclosure requirement in relation to them as well. So on the mandatory disclosure around, um, and we've seen quite strong wording from APRA in February this year and um, some updates to the OFR from ASIC last year, has that been challenged in terms of what uh, your clients are thinking about what they can actually disclose and what they can say versus what they need to be saying? I, I think that's a really great question, Peter, because it is quite challenging because whilst there is a requirement for companies to be able to assess and disclose and report as relevant to their financial and operational uh, review requirements in their annual reports, it's important that it's not seen as a ticker box exercise. And there needs to be a robustness in the assessment because much in the same way as disclosure uh, can be for the purposes of distilling or for presenting a true side of the uh, financial affairs and operational affairs at the company, it also needs to be a genuine one that's been tested. So I think it's important that when companies are looking at it, they're, they're not looking at it as being just a, a mere extension of a sustainability report, that it needs to be front and centre. And so therefore, the attention that needs to be given to it needs to be a robust one. It needs to be actually quite strongly tested to ensure that what they are presenting is a fair and reasonable view of that business's assessment of the climate change risk to which they're exposed to and what implications it has for their investment strategy and their financial um, strategy overall. And just building on that, Brendan, uh, we, we find very similar kind of robust discussions occurring with some of our clients as well. And what we find, and that we have a challenge between uh, uniformity and comparability of say, scenarios and particularly which scenarios uh, businesses want to compare um, benchmark themselves with, yet each business is nuanced. It's different. They have different assets, uh, they're different geographical positions. Do we really need comparable scenarios? Again, very challenging question. Um, I think from my perspective, it's important that one, if businesses are going to be assessing climate change related risk to their particular business, then they need to have a starting point. That starting point is to be looking at particular scenarios. The stress testing that uh, we would be recommending that businesses undertake in relation to their assessment necessarily involves a nuanced approach. In other words, they need to understand um, whether or not some of the risks that have been identified, how they translate, are they material in terms of the business's operations? and financial position. And that does require looking at the particular circumstances of that business. So I think whilst, yes, we do need to understand and work from particular scenarios, that needs then to be translated into the particular business's situation. And part of that can also be 
effectively, for want of a better expression, comparing against peers. So identifying who your peers are in your market and working out whether or not from what they're reporting and disclosing, there is a comparability between them. We can't ex- expect that they will be identical, but they need to understand that, well, if that particular business that also operates in my sector understands that this is a particular risk to them, then I need to review and revisit my assessment to ensure not that I'm copying them, but for the purposes of understanding how these particular selection of scenarios operate within my particular sector. So it's quite a nuanced approach that we're really talking about here as well. Which is why I think that one of the important things that needs to be addressed here is the building of internal capability within organisations to understand climate-related risk, but then actually how to then translate that from the mini assessment from the science point of view to how it then operates within the business, assessing the risk to the business, but then also dealing with the legal requirements and the emerging legal requirements that the expectations of the regulators regarding assessment, reporting and disclosure. So one of the things that we've seen, um, particularly over the last three months throughout this year, really, is that science has come to the fore again. Um, We've, through the bushfires uh, earlier uh, this year and late last year, to now a global pandemic, uh, we've really had to listen to the science and respond to the facts. And we've seen uh, a lot of the big banks now employing climate scientists um, already employed by insurers and reinsurers for a very long period of time and now coming and translating that into business impacts. What are you seeing then from a, a legal perspective from the science Um, Not a great deal at the moment, I have to say. Um, I think what we're seeing at the moment is that to the extent that um, science is coming to the fore and take litigation for an example, um, what we're probably seeing is the emergence of probabilistic risk assessment uh, and applying what was uh, a a science-based approach to, for example, in relation to um, um, tobacco uh, in in the uh, 70s and 80s, we're now seeing that type of approach being applied to climate science. So what we're seeing is an assessment being done both in relation to event uh, occurrence, but source attribution uh, being looked at in terms of how liability can be um, uh, attracted based on a probabilistic risk assessment of climate-related risk. Um, So we're seeing that, like I said, in relation to events. So is the increased risk of a particular event occurring attributable to climate change? And if so, how has that uh, been responsible for a particular incident or damage that's been suffered? But also in terms of um, source attribution, I think one of the interesting things that um, uh, came out last year was some work being done out of the US, which was able to, I think, account for um, 70% around that percentage, 70% of the world's emissions attributed to 100 companies. And so when we're seeing that type of emerging um, research, um, both in the science, but also in the legal area and the legal academia, and we're seeing a lot of research papers put out by lawyers as well in relation to uh, probabilistic risk uh, attribution, uh, that there is a growing science and legal understanding of how the science applies to potential liability in the future for climate-related risk. So if we've looked at historical events and historical relationships, 
If we combine that then with the climate projections, now we often talk about a variety of climate projections for different uh, one and a half degree world up to a six degree world. But if we look at those projections, there's actually really quite a narrow band within the next 20 years in that we've got approximately 1.1 degree of climate warming locked into our system. And it's the decadal uh, response of our uh, climate system that regardless of any immediate action, it will take approximately two decades for things to change. So are you saying that then the climate projections that we're being produced by leading climate scientists will then come in quite a foreseeable way into potential future liability for businesses and um, their uh, directors and directors' responsibilities. Uh, I, I think that's, without a doubt, that will occur. And does that then go to some of the questioning that um, APRA is really asking about what climate information are boards uh, accessing to make future investment decisions? Uh, absolutely, in the sense that they need not only to be appraised of the issue, but also understand and seek the right information in order to be able to make the decisions that they need to be making in relation to the future investment strategy of the particular business. Do you think many businesses in Australia are doing that at the moment? Again, I think it's a case of it's um, uh, different businesses within different sectors are doing it better than others. And uh, as I mentioned, I think the financial services sector and the insurance sector are certainly leading the charge on that front. Uh, other sectors, I think, uh, particularly in the energy resources sector, are certainly uh, moving forward faster than what they had previously done. Uh, whereas other sectors, I think it's a much more of a struggle, uh, particularly in the manufacturing sector, uh, where it's very difficult for them to find the resources to be able to look at the science, let alone the R&D side of things as well. And we often talk about impacts to infrastructure or um, market segments, but do we also need to consider the human element here, both from a human well-being perspective. So, for example, if we're asking workers to work in more extreme conditions with hotter temperatures and more uh, different changing of physical environments, do we need to consider those issues as well? Uh, certainly, um, uh, as a result of the um, bushfires that occurred, I think, uh, recently in the southeast coast of Australia, that there has been significant attention uh, being brought to bear on the well-being of workers and individuals because there are real issues associated with the risks that the particular employees are exposed to, not just in the localities where they work, which may be exposed to higher risks of climate-related events occurring, but also in the response to those incidents. So, for example, in relation to the impacts that occurred as a result of the bushfires, take the example to infrastructure, telecommunications and electricity transmission infrastructure about the potentially higher risk that uh, individual um, um, employees were being exposed to by reason of being required to respond to those risks and undertake works in those high-risk areas. So certainly there are being questions asked and I think that there is a growing understanding of the need to assess the increased risk to employees as a result of climate-related events occurring. Um, and certainly to take the much broader picture, which is, for example, the increased incidence of um, uh, hot days occurring. Certainly the predictions indicate that it's, I think it's in Melbourne, it's going to quadruple in the next um, several decades. And in those circumstances that there needs to be a review of the relevant 
work health and safety policies uh, that apply to particular industries and sectors which are going to be operating during those events occurring. So certainly it, it is very much also being looked at from an employee individual point of view and I think there is a growing awareness and that will continue to occur. Turning our mind now to adaptation requirements because clearly we have um, climate change is locked in we will need to adapt so and we will need to change how we do things but we're also asking our workers then to adapt you know different operating environmental conditions as well so do we need to think about how not only the adaption side but how these people are working what they can be doing different productivities different uh, measures to actually assist them Absolutely. Uh, I think this is the short answer to that question. Uh, there is a whole range of measures that can be looked at. I mean, we also, uh, with just the recent COVID uh, uh, exemptions that have been applied in relation to business and industry sectors to enable them to work effectively observing social distancing, uh, and that has included a relaxation of uh, hours of operation both in relation to businesses, whether it be the supermarkets being able to take deliveries outside of the usual operating hours or restrictions that operate, or alternatively doing work, uh, being able to accommodate work at different periods of time, suspending the operation of hours of operation for planning approvals and consent. So certainly there has been they're, they are concrete examples of changes that need to be made in terms of adapting to the particular circumstances that we're facing. And I think climate change will be very much also like that. Unlike COVID, it is one that will continue to, uh, because it isn't uniform uh, and it's also, uh, whilst severe and acute, uh, is going to be over and we hope will be over in a, in a few more months' time. But climate change is not like that. It, it is both severe and will be an ongoing issue that needs to be addressed. And so certainly I think we'll see an evolution of the way in which we adapt our working environment uh, and the way in which businesses operate to address that and try and accommodate that. So we've spoken quite a lot about the risks uh, to businesses and investors today. What about some of the opportunities? Do you see opportunities in this future environment? Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's the flip side of the coin is that um, someone else's risk is someone else's potential opportunity. And so businesses that are aware of climate-related risk and see what the risks are to their business uh, necessarily also are looking at how they can mitigate that risk and that also discloses opportunities. Um, so that certainly from, and this goes to the fundamental um, sustainability of businesses, that they need to be looking not only at the environment which they're currently operating, but also looking into the short to long term. And in circumstances where the science is telling us that we need to reduce our emissions as quickly as we possibly can and reach net, net zero emissions as soon as possible, uh, or at least try and seek to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement, in those circumstances, you see a significant change in the operating environment that it will have to occur over not just the next few years with regulatory changes, but also over the next decade or two decades, as you indicated, Peter. So certainly that changing in environment and changing of the economics means that there needs to be a full review of the options available to a business to be a sustainable business. And by that, I'm not just mean being green, um, but being actually a business that will have a future. Uh, that will be able to continue to operate successfully in a changed economic environment. So on that note, I'd, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Brendan. What is your final piece of advice to, to the board directors and investors and businesses that are listening to this podcast? Um, I think uh, the way in which I'd leave it would be, um, even if you don't believe that you feel as though that there is a 
material significant risk associated with climate change, you need to actually be able to document that rationale and reasoning. So I don't think it's sufficient now to be able to say uh, we've looked at it and we think that for various reasons that we're not exposed to a risk. I think it needs to be properly documented and articulated and tested. And I think through that process, people and boards in particular will realise that that there is a risk that exists that needs to be managed. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Brendan. And on that note, thank you, listeners. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.